always. Hi there, welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. He's watching us. This week I heard of a little boy who wrote this note to his grandmother. Dear Grandma, thanks for the tape recorder you sent me for Christmas. I've already made quite a bit of money selling tapes back to Dad of him talking around the house on Sunday mornings. I'm saving up now to buy a video camera. Thanks again, love, Eldon. In the opening verses of 1 Samuel, we have been presented with two starkly contrasting views of the world, and people were watching both of those worldviews. Hannah's understanding was articulated magnificently in her prayer that we covered last week. She knew that there is none holy like the Lord, and there is no rock like our God. Hannah saw the whole world in light of that reality, including the circumstances of her own life. She knew that the Lord made everything different. The other view of things is that of Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were the young priests at Shiloh. In contrast to Hannah, they did not know the Lord. It seems that they saw life in the darkness of their ignorance, and so they had conducted their lives accordingly. Greed ruled them, and their power was abused to serve their gluttony. This morning we're going to see that not only were people watching these two men, but they were also following their example. Look at verse 22 with me. Now Eli was very old, and he heard everything his sons did to all of Israel, and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. That phrase, lying with women, obviously speaks of immorality, fornication, and adultery. I heard one man say that the only way to get rid of sex, sex outside of marriage, is if we could somehow prove that it was fattening. Now, there are two schools of thought of what is going on here. It may be that Hophni and Phinehas forced themselves upon the women who came to worship the Lord. Back in Exodus 38, there is mention of women who served at the tabernacle, most likely cleaning up around the doorway. Perhaps these are the very women that Hophni and Phinehas are taking advantage of. Or it could mean that they put together a group, as the original language suggests, of temple prostitutes, as did the pagans of the region. If that were the case, they would be introducing to the people of Israel temple prostitution. This was an abomination, parallel to the condemnation of the Canaan pagan practices and equated with idolatry. 
Now, Eli's response to his sons will pale in comparison to Phineas in Numbers 25, where because of the sexual sin between a man of Israel and a Midianite, he speared them both with one blow, kind of like a human shish kebab, because he was jealous for the Lord. Either way, it's a deplorable situation that has come to Eli's attention. They forced themselves upon the meat of the temple, the ladies at the temple, and the goodwill of the worshipers. God's people were abused, God's place was desecrated, and God's provision was stolen. But do you know what's worse than immorality? It's when leaders are involved in it, and especially spiritual leaders. The quote I'm about to read is not meant to incite any kind of laughter because, quite frankly, there's nothing funny about it. In fact, it is truly tragic. But here it is, the quote. To allow a preacher of the gospel, when he is caught beyond a shadow of a doubt, committing an immoral act to remain in his position as pastor or whatever, would be the most gross stupidity. That was spoken by Jimmy Swaggart in the late 1980s, before he was caught not once, but twice with a prostitute. And those were just the times he had been caught. There may have been many more. And yet when the Assembly of God, of which he was a part, asked him to step down from the ministry, he refused to do so, forcing them to defrock him, which I applaud them for. The crazy thing is, to this very day, just last week, I still deliver his newsletters to his supporters. And it makes me wonder, what would a man have to do to get disqualified from the ministry in this world that we live in today? But I think we can all agree that Eli's sons are completely out of control. So what does Daddy do? So here's what we read. It says, Eli said to them, oh, this ought to be good. He's going to really let them have it. He's going to at least remove them as priests. But here's what we read. This is the message paraphrase of what he says. Eli says to his boys, What's going on here? Why are you doing these things? I hear story after story of your corrupt and evil carrying on. Oh, my sons, this is not right. These are terrible reports I'm getting. Stories spreading right and left among God's people. If you sin against another person, there's help. God's help. But if you sin against God, who's around to help? And uh, that's about it. That's all he does. He gives them a good talking to. This is what the super nanny calls a threatening parent, right? A parent who always says, well, next time, next time this happens, or I'm going to count to ten, or if you do that again, I'll turn this car around, which, of course, my parents would never do. I mean, they needed a vacation far more than I did, partly because of me. Henry David Thoreau wrote, The path of least resistance leads to crooked rivers and crooked men. Allow me to speak for a moment on the subject of child discipline. If you follow sports, the issue of spanking has been in the news quite a bit. Superstar running back Adrian Peterson has been suspended for the entire year because of this very thing. Now, let me say, Mr. Peterson went too far in his discipline. Anytime you leave bruises on a child, you have stepped over the line. 
But we should never judge anything solely on its abuses. Proverbs 13.24 He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. Let me say up front and very clearly that the Bible does not advocate child abuse. The rod was designed to sting and was used not to punish the sheep, but to guide them. It's the imagery of the well-known Psalm 23. What does it say? Your rod and your staff comfort me. If you are a Christian, you have felt that rod from time to time in your life. Why? Because God loves us far too much to allow us to stay in any kind of state of rebellion. Kenneth Weiss translates Hebrews 12.6 like this. For the one whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, corrects, and guides, and he scourges every son he receives and cherishes. And although it may not seem like, like it at the time, studies have proven that kids want boundaries in their lives. When done correctly, it shows them that the parents truly care and they have their best long-term interest at heart. I think of my own earthly father here. If he told me to do something, he didn't have to explain his reasons to me. He just expected me to obey him. But, of course, parenting was way different back then. Back then, a naughty chair is what they hit you with, and a timeout was how long you were unconscious. But today, kids are told that if their parents spanks them, they can turn them into the school the next day. Isn't that crazy? If I would have turned my parents in for spanking me, all that would have resulted in was yet another spanking for turning them in. I mean, how stupid is that? And words of our great philosopher, Falkhorn Leghorn, I might not be the sharpest tool in the shed, but I ain't no bowling ball either. But enough about my need for therapy. Most of my generation grew up with corporal punishment that was imposed by spanking. And while today that is considered archaic and ignorant in popular culture, I do know this. People can call it antiquated and barbaric if they want to, but I do know one thing. Back when I went to school, you didn't have to worry about kids cussing at their teachers and hitting them. Back when I went to school, no one even heard of fourth graders having sex. And back when I went to school, there was also no guns in the school either. And in the words of Forrest Gump, that's all I have to say about that. Falkhorn, Lilkhorn, and Forrest Gump. I bought all the theological heavyweights this morning, haven't I? Listen, if you are able to discipline your child by reasoning and only using timeouts, God bless you. Just be glad I wasn't your kid. It just wouldn't have worked with me. In fact, I would have spent all my time out planning my next move. And even with spankings, I was a handful, but at least I wasn't spoiled. There are a few things as sad as a spoiled child. I read this recently. Milk is spoiled when it starts to look like yogurt. Yogurt is spoiled when it starts to look like cottage cheese. Cottage cheese is spoiled when it starts to look like regular cheese. Cheddar cheese is spoiled when you think it's blue cheese, but you realize you never purchased any blue cheese. Now, there are a number of ways you can tell something is spoiled in your refrigerator, but when it does become rotten, what do you do with it? Well, you just throw it away. 
Now, that's appropriate for food. But what do you do when part of your family becomes spoiled? What action should you take when your children start to act rotten? What happens when the influences of the culture make too great of an inroad into your family's life? Mom and Dad, take note here. If your primary goal as a parent is to have your children to like you, you will not like what your children eventually become. Your primary goal should be to want your kids to to do and know what's right in the sight of God. If that means discipline, so be it. If they hate you in the process, so be it. But you must honor God more than you honor your children. Eli wanted to be cool in the eyes of his boys, and we will see it led to their downfall. But here's the thing. Eli's son's actions just weren't affecting them. Verse 24 tells us they were also leading others into sin as well. The people were doing what they saw the priests doing. Eli's sons were leading the Israelites into sin. But instead of taking positive steps to correct the situation, Eli gently rebukes them, being an indulgent father. Verse 23 says, Eli was hearing reports from all the people. The rebellion of their sons was on everybody's lips. People were coming to Eli and probably saying something to the effect of, Before you try to guide the nation, do you think you might be able to keep your own kids under control? Could you maybe ask them to keep their filthy hands off of our daughters? It's tragic when a father and a spiritual leader loses influence over their own family and then can only wait for God's judgment to fall. After moving to Sodom, Lot lost his influence with his family. And after David's affair with Bathsheba, his influence over his sons were also greatly weakened. Eli's parenting methods were simply bankrupt. He talked loudly but carried a small stick. His bite was nothing like his bark. They were too big to spank, but at the very least, he should have removed them permanently from the ministry. I was impressed by the story of an Amish man who caught his two boys drinking beer at a local tavern. Sounds like the beginning of a bad joke, doesn't it? You expect me to say an Amish man, a clown, and a lawyer walks into a bar. At first, I didn't notice anything, but when an Amish man walks into a bar, it gets noticed eventually, and the noise of the establishment diminished until it was completely silent. The disappointed father promptly disciplined his sons. He told them, I'll take the horse home, boys, and you can bring the buggy. That father did something to deal with his son's sins, but Eli didn't. Eli could have done something, but he didn't do anything to stop his boys in their evil behavior. He just gave them a good talking to, and ultimately this led to their tragic deaths. Truth be told, Eli was an absentee father, a doting, indulgent, and coddling parent. Now, there are a couple of reasons why Eli probably didn't discipline his sons, but the one we're going to focus on this morning is simply he probably just loved them. Those are his boys, and he gets distracted by his love for his sons. He loves them more, at least at this part of his life, than he loves God. And so he overlooks their sin because he loved them too much to obey the Lord. 
Now, Jesus has something to say about that. He said, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Matthew 10, 37. Eli loved his sons more than God. And because of that, they kept him from listening to God. And they also distracted him from his responsibility before God. And because Eli loved his sons as much as he did, he stopped listening to God and he ultimately lost everything that he held dear. We're going to see in the coming weeks he will lose both sons, his life, and his family will permanently lose their place in the priesthood. How often do we see parents let their kids do pretty much what they do, though? Not in our church, of course. I'm talking about churches in New Jersey. Our lives should be a reflection of what we want our children to model. It's confusing for a child to see mom and dad say one thing and then do the other. Because kids are going to do what they see their parents doing. When it comes to a godly example, more is caught than taught. Gail Irwin says, I taught all my kids proper table manners, but they all eat like me. A study once disclosed that if both mom and dad attend church regularly, 72% of the children will remain faithful in attendance. If only dad attends regularly, 55% will remain faithful. If mom attends regularly, 15% remain faithful. But if neither attends regularly, only 6% of those children will remain faithful. Once again, we are being watched. From the human viewpoint, it looks like that Eli's two sons are getting away with everything. But God was preparing judgment for them while he was equipping his servant Samuel to continue his work. Verse 25, please. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor with both the Lord and and men. As we said earlier, Hophni and Phineas didn't just have a covert rendezvous with these women. They were brazenly open about their conquest. The things of God were simply a job to them that had some great benefits. The writer then adds these chilling words, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Simply put, they had gone too far. They were beyond the realm of repentance. Only God knows that point in any human life. But the very fact that there is a line is certainly something to think about. Hophni and Phinehas were destined to die. They had crossed the line. They had went too far. Their sin and materialism had metastasized. What was initially lust and covetousness never stayed satisfied with just that. And like when a cancer metastasizes... They change their stance. They go from greed to sex to full, open-throated rebellion. That's how sin is, by the way. It never stays in the nice little compartment that we try to keep it in. No, like a cancer, it begins to grow. And just like physical cancer, it may take a long time before we start seeing or feeling the effects of it. Listen to how James explains this. I've had Lisa Moten include it in our slides so you can follow along. James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. 
For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he does not himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Allow me to break that progression down for us this morning. It comes in four stages. Desire, deception, disobedience, and then death. It begins by saying, whenever we are tempted, well, that's a desire. And temptation is not a sin. The Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every way like us, but without sin. So the issue is not us being tempted, but what we do when that temptation eventually arrives on our doorstep. In our passage from James, he's going to show us what happens when we allow that temptation to overcome us instead of us dealing with it. What does that look like? The next phrase says, we are carried away and then enticed. That's the deception part. The Greek word used there gives the idea of luring away with bait. Like when you go fishing. I only know this by watching TV. But from what I understand, if you are a good fisherman, you know the exact lure or bait in order to catch a certain kind of fish with. Well, so too with the enemy of our souls. Did you know that he and his minions have been watching you your entire life just to see what weaknesses you may exhibit? He will then custom make a temptation for that very thing that we struggle with. The crazy thing is, though, even though we've fallen for the bait before and experienced the terrible results, often we will try the same bait at a later time, hoping it will be a different outcome this time. Here we see the disobedience. In a view from the zoo, Gary Richmond, a former zookeeper, had this to say. He says, raccoons go through a glandular change at about 24 months. After that, they often attack their owners. And since a 30-pound raccoon can be equal to a 100-pound dog in a fight, I felt compelled to mention the change coming to a pet raccoon owner by a young friend of mine named Julie. She listened politely as I explained the coming danger. I'll never forget her answer. It will be different for me. And she smiled and added, Bandit wouldn't hurt me. He just wouldn't. Three months later, Julie went plastic surgery for facial lacerations when her pet raccoon, for no apparent reason, attacked her. Bandit was then released into the wild. You know, Sintu often comes dressed in an adorable disguise. And as we play with it, how easy it is to say, it will be different for me. This sin won't hurt me this time. It just wouldn't. But the results are just as predictable. So we've seen the logical outworking and progression of desire, deception, and then disobedience. What's the last stage? James 1.15 tells us that when sin is accomplished, it finally brings forth death. Now, in Hophni and Phineas' case, the sin will be actual death, will result in actual physical death. However, there are other kinds of deaths that sin can cause. There can be the death of a relationship, the death of a marriage, the death of a ministry, or maybe just the death of temporary fellowship with God. Now, fortunately, thank God, it doesn't have to stay that way. We can repent and reestablish most relationships to a certain degree in most cases. But here's the thing. 
If we don't deal with the sin in our lives, eventually the Lord will. He will step in because he loves us. We see this in verse 27 concerning Eli. And the man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt and Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer up on my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephah before me? Did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling place? And honor your sons more than me, to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people. Do you remember that TV show, The Jeffersons? The idea of the Jeffersons is that George Jefferson had started out with one little cleaning shop somewhere uptown living in a cramped, crowded apartment building. But then Georgie and his wife, Wheezy, did well. Their cleaning shop multiplied into a chain of shops, and so the Jeffersons were able to move. They moved on up to the east side, moving on up, where the fish don't smell up the kitchen and the beans don't burn on the grill. It took a whole lot of trying just to get up that hill. Guess what song's going to be in your head the rest of the day? And in their new plush digs, the Jeffersons forgot about where they had came from. In fact, they worked hard at forgetting about where they came from. And that's the way it is with a lot of us sometimes. We'd rather enjoy where we are now than to think back to what kind of struggle it took for us to get here. We'd rather settle down into the comforts we've achieved than to look backward. It feels humiliating to look back. It can feel threatening to look back. But therein is a spiritual danger. The spiritual danger is that we forget that it is God who brought us out and brought us to where we are today. It was by following the will of God that we moved forward at all. And once we forget how obedience to God's will brought us out, then we begin to focus on what we can keep for ourselves by doing it by ourselves. And a spiritual catastrophe is then in the making. In closing, here through a prophet, God says to Eli, you and your family have a heritage reaching all the way back to Aaron in the days of the Exodus. You were given the privilege to walk before me and stand before me every day. But you despised it by allowing your sons to remain in their sin. Verse 29 says, you honored your sons more than you honored me. You cared more about them liking you than what I thought about the situation. And the you there at the beginning of 29 is plural and includes Eli with his sons. From the Lord's viewpoint, to tolerate sin and not deal with it severely is to participate in some way in that sin. As high priest, Eli had the authority to discipline his sons, but he refused to do so. What is the result of all this? Come back next week to find out. Father, so thankful that you have been faithful. All the times that we have been faithless, you have been faithful to us. You are such a faithful and wonderful God. And even those times that we feel your rod, Lord, we know it's only because you cherish us as children. I pray, Lord, that we would be those who would learn quickly from our mistakes and from the mistakes of others, so we would walk in you in holy obedience. I ask these things in Christ's name. 
Amen.